everybody, welcome to the first episode of Talking Polynics. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the second debates for uh, the Democratic nomination. It was two nights hosted by CNN. Uh, I'm not going to go down and list every candidate who was in each debate, but we'll just hop right in on basically what went down, and then we'll give our takes on the whole thing. So, in the first debate, first night, the... Essentially, the moderates were in a food fight with the extremists of the party, or the further progressive, when it came over to health care. It was Delaney, Bullock, Ryan, and Hickenlooper versus Warren and Sanders at the end of the day. A lot of what they argued about was, was that basically the moderates, Delaney, Bullock, Ryan, Hickenlooper, basically argued that having universal health care was unfeasible and that we weren't going to be able to pay for it and that we shouldn't be promising Americans these false dreams. And then Warren and Sanders basically fought back saying that it is possible. We have a video clip of the whole argument that we'll play right now. Why do we got to be the party of taking something away no, from people? No, no one is the party. Okay, hold on, hold on That's one what they're second. running on. They're no. running on telling half the country that your health insurance is illegal. It says it right in the bill. At the end of the day, I'm not going to support any plan that rips away quality health care from individuals. This is an example of wish list economics. So I think Democrats win when we run on real solutions, not impossible promises. When we run on things that are workable, not fairy tale economics. I get a little bit tired of Democrats afraid of big ideas. Republicans are not afraid of big ideas. Medicare for all is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs for senior citizens. It will finally include dental care, hearing aids, and eyeglasses. But you don't know Second that. of all. You don't know that, Second Bernie. of all. We'll I, do, I do know, and I wrote the damn bill. I think if we're going to force Americans to make these radical changes, they're not going to go along. You, you throw your hands up, but you, oh, really? you haven't. Oh, I can do it, but you haven't implemented the plans. You know, I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. We are the Democrats. We are not about trying to take away health care from anyone. That's what the Republicans are trying to do. And we should stop using Republican talking points in order to talk with each other about how to best provide that health care. All right, guys. Yeah. When I hear about this Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders versus these other guys, I think one of the major um, ideas in these debates and really of the Democratic Party in general is the Democratic Party for the most part, stands for helping the poor, helping the needy, and doing what's best for the people. And what sometimes happens with these candidates is, okay, who's going to do the thing that's best for the people? Who's going to, and then it turns into who's going to do the thing that the people want the most. And then, and then it comes to, you know, how much can we give to the people? How much can we do for them? And then I think that one of the, uh, most difficult parts of these debates is, all right, this candidate promises one thing. Now this candidate promises the same thing, but to a bigger extent. And the argument is, and what they're trying to do is call each other out on, 
you know, what's actually realistic. So I think one of the biggest takeaways of the debates is balancing um, giving your constituents the most of what they want, but balancing with what's realistic. And I think in a lot of cases, you'll hear a candidate uh, say something that may be less realistic, but is one-upping another candidate. And then we have this fight of, okay, well, what's actually realistic versus what's the best option, what can be balanced. And that's what you'll see. You'll see people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders that veer to the side of, we're going to do the most for the constituents. But then you have these people like Delaney, Bullock, and Ryan. And then later on, uh, people like Joe Biden who are like, all right, I want to do the same thing, but I think it can't happen to this extent. And here's the realistic reasons why. So I think that's a lot of what the argument's about. And I think that's probably what me and Nick will talk about a lot today. What do you think, Nick? Uh, I, I think, well, we heard it right there in the clip, how it was John Delaney attacking Warren and Sanders on their plan. And he, he continually says this, how we shouldn't be promising Americans false dreams. We should come up with real solutions. And then what Warren had to come back with was, why, why are you even bothering running for president if you're not going to stand up for like the big ideas? Yeah. And Bernie even said something like that too. I mean, and then you have those big ideas and they're good. And as I just said, they're good, but how realistic are they? And one of the things that catches my eye, at least me specifically, is I'm not opposed to big ideas, you know, whether or not I agree with them um, down to the principle or to the uh, policy itself can be argued. And I think that's where we should be having this decision on which policy is the best. But I'm not opposed to it. But on the realistic side, you have people like Sanders and Warren who have a good idea. And what they'll say is... Um, there's going to be no negative consequences or on the other side, well, we'll just taxes are going to take care of it. And the question is, is taxes really enough? Even if people were behind it, I think that any, I think if they're going to end whatever corruption there is right now and really make a difference, it's going to not just be, you know, adding to the situation, but it's going to be like shifting different pieces. So if they're going to, bolster health care and education, what are they going to take away from on the other side? You know, is it going to be, it can be anything as big as uh, national defense to, um, you know, big businesses to anything foreign policy related, whatever it is. At the end of the day, I think any good policy has to have, has to not just add to the situation, but um, shift funds or eliminate policies in other areas. You can't just keep continuing to build. You have to make adjustments and you have to make sacrifices. And I think that, I mean, on a personal note, I think that Bernie Sanders has gotten so caught up in helping people that he's afraid to admit that there would need to be some sort of change made. Whereas you see people like uh, Tulsi Gabbard or some of these other guys that are willing to admit that there would have to be some sort of sacrifice made. Well, uh, we saw we saw that with uh, Warren post the debate, she was being asked about to pay for the health care. Well, you have to raise middle class taxes, and like she was out there like Neo from the Matrix. She she was just dodging, dodging answering that question. She it was a yes or no question. She just said 
costs would go down, costs would go down, and she wouldn't say whether or not middle class taxes would go up. And Bernie, on the other hand, he's he's very honest about it. If you ask him, will middle class taxes go up, he would say yes. Right, which and, is at least a good thing that he admits that. Um, I just think, I think seeing someone like Bernie or Elizabeth Warren as president and watching them actually enact uh, what they want would be difficult. I'm not, I'm not sure, but from what I've seen and from Nick can either agree or disagree with me, but my understanding of a lot of things that President Obama did, you know, was he able to completely enact a situation or a policy to the extent like they want to? I believe I watched a clip of him talking and he talked about his Obamacare Act and said that, you know, he knew that he wouldn't be able to fully enact the entire policy. So his goal was to get it signed off on and get it just out there, knowing that it wasn't going to be a complete fix. And then once it's out there, it can't be stopped. And from there, it's open to be added to, taken away from and adjusted. But uh, he just wanted to get it started. So. When I look at someone like that, which Obama, for the most part, had a huge amount of support, uh, almost like complete support, and he still had difficulty enacting his policy, and his policies weren't even that extreme, when it comes to something like Bernie Sanders enacting universal health care and universal education, I mean, what does the realistic um, enaction of that even look like when you're talking about not only opposition from the conservatives, but also opposition from other less progressive Democrats. Well, yeah, like the Democrats that were on stage with them, they're going to have trouble convincing them of universal health care, education. It, or when it comes to education, it, it goes the same for just community college or four-year university. They had that whole argument. We shouldn't just stop at community college. We should do the whole shebang. Right. Uh, another thing that they talked about was wasn't just healthcare for everyone. It was healthcare for uh, illegal immigrants as well. So people who came here illegally, they get free healthcare, free college, the whole, the whole thing. And that was also. An idea that was debated for a while during the debate. Right. And, th- and then it goes again. You talk, talk about constituents. And if you're looking from a Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders standpoint, most of their constituents are going to be those hyper-progressive, hyper-liberal people in you know the Northeast or the West Coast. And not only are they the most progressive, but they also are, you know, more technologically savvy. They're the ones who you see on social media, who you hear about, who are, who have the time and are going to you know college and really, really want f- uh, free education on top of having the platform and the technological and just social ability to be seen and be heard. But then you talk about um, the constituents of someone like Joe Biden who are mostly... Uh, the country's poor that are Southern or, you know, people of that nature and their voice might not be completely heard. And there's a lot of people in this country who, I mean, once again, Nick, 
tell me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot of people in this country who are liberal, who do care about people, do want what's best for everyone, but honestly don't want free education. They don't think that that's necessary. They don't think that that's, it's not a priority for them. They're not, their goal isn't to go to UC Berkeley and get a law degree or get, you know, a, whatever you get from UC Berkeley. They want to just have food on the table, be able to work a job that feeds them and their family, and they really like their small town they're from, they really like their community, and they don't have any plans on moving to the Northeast or the West Coast. And their, their whole idea and their whole goal is just to have, you know, enough to support them and their families. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, ex I know exactly what you mean. How these progressives on the for the democrats if they go too far left they're not going to be able to get any republican or and going to have trouble getting some independent voters where or in order to win a presidential election you're going to have to get some republicans to vote for you and get a, a decent amount of independents to vote for you as well and if you go too far left they're going to have nowhere else to go but to trump because there's no one who's actually fighting for for what they believe in. They're going to have to vote for whoever's closest. Right, and I think that uh, a lot of these presidential candidates would be surprised of how willing people on both sides, center and right, would be willing to vote for a Democratic candidate as opposed to Donald Trump. I mean, we all know the situation that went down that caused... Uh, President Trump to be elected in the last election. Um, not even talking about him because this isn't this uh, episode is not about him. But there's a lot of people who would be very very willing to vote for a solid Democratic candidate, who you know maybe they don't agree with in all aspects policy wise, but just simply don't have the absolute. Um, I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. Just, I guess, disdain from the public or from the world. Whether or not you agree or disagree with uh, the current presidential candidate, there's a lot of things that could be fixed. And there's a lot of conservatives that acknowledge that and would be willing. You know? Someone like... or Well, well so there is a lot of conservatives who, if someone ran on the exact same platform that Bill Clinton ran on, Lots of conservatives would vote for a Bill Clinton type Democrat because he's he was more moderate. He was left leaning a little bit, but there was the give and take that that you're willing to give up in order to not have Trump be your president. Uh, at the end of the day, there's not a lot of people who like Trump. There's not a lot, and it's uh, he he has only a like a forty two forty three percent approval rating with an under 4% unemployment rate. Like, he's not... He won't be that hard to beat if you have someone who's not so extreme running against right. him. Right, and I think... Something to be mentioned that you won't hear on mainstream media, but that's why we're here to talk about it, is in all reality, the vast majority of people in this country either don't care a whole lot about politics or just simply care more about their own lives, whether it's because they're busy, they have their priorities, their family, or uh, they simply just don't hold a huge interest 
in politics or in picking a friend side that just wants something that is good for them as a person and then as a liberal want something that will help the people to the best of you know this nation's ability and that's not that's not a crazy ideology it's not some hyper progressive ideology it's simply someone saying i'm willing to have a candidate that is going to do the best they can to help everyone else even if i have to get taxed a little more even if i have to you know give up a little bit to help other people i'm cool with that as long as my basic lifestyle and my family is protected and i think that that's a reasonable idea you just have to find a democrat who isn't trying to you know overly appease the hyper liberal progressive left who's that going to be well right now the front runners are biden sanders warren and Harrison Buttigieg. Would you argue that there, I understand those are the front runners, but would you argue that there's other candidates that might fit that um, you know, center line, immiscible ideology better that just don't happen to be a powerhouse like like those? Well, so when it comes to candidates who I think would have better chance if they were up ahead with Donald Trump, I think people like Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard who already have a decent amount of support from Republicans. There's a lot of Republicans who like them as candidates. I think they would have a better chance because the other candidates are so extreme. For Joe Biden, for example, he had a he he had a speech at a campaign rally where he was talking about how we need to get Obamacare back. We need to bring that back and maybe adjust it a little bit. That's going to be Trump's whole campaign slogan. You're going to see ads about that all over the place because that's basically what Trump ran against in 2016. Or Sanders saying, yes, I am going to raise the middle class taxes. You're going to see that all over. Yeah, I mean, it's that's a definite, I think... One of the most difficult parts about being a presidential candidate is the technique and the methodology you have to use to win in a primaries is much different than you have than you need to use against in the um, the main election, let alone against someone like Donald Trump. So right there, you're beating out fellow Democrats takes a way different strategy than it does to beat. A conservative candidate and then it just throws a whole nother wrench in the game when you have someone like Donald Trump who you know isn't gonna play by your rules you know Democrats pride themselves on being uh, tactful and being um, appeasing to the people and doing and like being nice and all of the social you know um, positives that you might think of and then you go against someone like Donald Trump and at some point, they're going to have to take off the gloves and say some things that uh, people might not like in order to beat him. Because if you don't do that, then you might just get steamrolled. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> so ultimately in the first debate, I think you could say that Elizabeth Warren won the debate. Uh, Marianne Williamson, she, I guess, shined. She didn't have a lot of speaking time, but when she did talk, 
you could tell it was effective. Everyone else just got caught throwing trash at each other. But Mar Marianne Williamson was actually the most looked up or Google searched candidate after the debate, except for in the state of Montana. The state of Montana's most searched candidate was their former governor. I guess they didn't know that he was their governor, governor, so they kept looking him up. I'm more surprised. I'll be honest. I wasn't unaware of this guy as well. I'm more surprised that a Democrat won um, governor of Montana because from my understanding, from knowing people from Montana, I didn't know that liberals existed there. But <laughs> that's neither here nor there. So in the second night, uh, there's a lot of Biden versus Harris. Uh, Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, they did pretty well. They had some pretty highlight moments. Uh, Cory Booker did well. He, he got pretty aggressive. He did attack some people. And then Harris and Biden themselves, they both did okay. Biden did better than his first debate, but he did look like the age was getting to him. There was a lot of times where he looked like he was stumbling out there. That's an interesting idea. I mean, we'll just, a side note that's not political. I know that people are living longer nowadays with better like healthcare and whatnot, better uh, medicine. But my understanding of people in their late 70s, usually they're deteriorating. So it's surprising to me to see all of these people that are running for the presidency or politics in general or Supreme Court, whatever it is, that are expected to perform at such a high level. But my my personal, albeit probably, you know, biased understanding of what a 75-plus-year-old is supposed to be would be someone that is a, a grandfather figure who's supposed to be deteriorating mentally. You know what I mean? So wh how do these people stay on their A-game? Not even saying that he's the, he may or may not be deteriorating, but how do you even get this far? How is he not just retired... To some little cottage, you know, playing with his grandkids. Uh, it's, it's interesting. And then it goes to show, like, well, would someone that's younger be better fit? What do you think? Well, there's there's three candidates in this election. The one Republican, 73 years old. Joe Biden, who I think is also 73. And then Bernie Sanders, who's 77. Do you want, and I'll say this uh, nicely, Do we does, does the world want someone in their potentially mid-80s to be the president of the United States? Is that, is that, what, we, is that what we want? Because my question is, you know, you see it in the movies. Um, well, just well, let's say, let's say Bernie or Biden wins, and they serve for... Eight years. That's two terms. Point. Two terms, yeah. So Sanders, who's like 77, finishes at 85... That's my point exactly. Is that what we want? Because you'd have to assume, and I'm not, I'm just going to straight up be honest. By the time you hit 85, you've had at least one major health complication. So you'd have to assume that our sitting president at some point in his time in office is going to have a major, major health complication, whether he's in the situation room planning, a, you know, some sort of military strike, or he's on the stage at some... Uh, international, you know, conference or whatever it is, he's gonna take a take a knee. Is that what we need? Is that what we want? Is that is does does he bring something to the table 
by being 77 years old that uh, overshadows someone younger like Andrew Yang or Tulsa Gabbard, who, by the way, Tulsa Gabbard is 38 years old. That's not necessarily young. I mean, for politics it is, but... Well, well or Pete Buttigieg, who's 37. Right. Uh, Cory Booker is still young. Kamala Harris. Right. So, I think it's an interesting... I, I don't know how big of a factor that would play in the election. I mean, how old is Donald Trump? 73? So he's a little bit younger. But even before that, you know, the last few presidents have been pretty young. I mean, Bill Clinton, not not sure exactly how old he was, but they were definitely much younger. I don't know. Yeah, well, the the two Democratic candidates who are leading, uh, uh, the front runners are Biden and Sanders. Sanders, 77. Biden, 76. And uh, even uh, Elizabeth Warren, I believe she's 70. Last I checked. So, it's interesting. And then then it goes into even further, you, um, a lot of the complaints, or not so much complaints, but the cheap shots, or whatever you want to call it, against Joe Biden, is his, illiteracy with technology specifically in the second debate he tries to give a shout out to his uh his website or whatever it is and says really what he meant to say was text biden at three seven three five zero seven or whatever and he was just like it was it was something like it was go to joe three oh three three oh and and was, no one really knew what that meant. So, so some of these guys have a huge technological illiteracy, which if you're making decisions on a world scheme, I don't know if you necessarily need to be that well-versed, but you know a huge portion of their base is these technologically advanced, uh, younger, college-aged generation. So maybe that'll look badly on them. I don't know. I think... I think it's very interesting to me how you can have, like how being older and being uh, involved in politics longer gives you such a a foot up when you look at uh, Bernie, Warren, and Biden. Because if you just talk policy-wise, I would argue that a lot of people... um, see someone like Andrew Yang and his policies as a better fit for a presidential candidacy. But it just happens to be the, uh, you know, the leg up that these other guys have had just from already being in politics. And it's interesting to me, like, where is that leg up coming from? Is it just because they have friends that are in politics or is it because they uh, do people actually like their policies better? I don't know. Like, why can't the world just see someone like Andrew Yang and be like, we actually like this guy. His policies are great. Like, let's all vote for him. And then he uh, gets a majority of votes. I don't know. Well, so, in talking about that, and then we'll switch switch over to the actual debate, what was said and stuff like that. When it comes to something like that, Biden has that eight years as vice president, so he has that... Everyone knows who Joe Biden is. 
And then Bernie Sanders has been a senator for like 29 years, something like that. So you have you have candidates who people have heard of before. And then you have other candidates who, when you look at their policies, might be better, but they're not just they're just not as popular. So no one can get behind them because they don't re- know who they are. I personally think that's a big reason why some of these guys are running in the first place. People like uh, Buttigieg or Beto O'Rourke, I think uh, they're running simply to get that exposure. I think they know that they don't have the uh, political clout to win, and I think they're running on the intent of those people in America that only follow presidential elections are going to hear their names, and then they're going to have a leg up. I mean, wasn't it you who said that Andrew Yang's Twitter following was, what was it, 20,000 people? 60,000 before he decided to run, and then now it's at 500,000. And so, just even if he didn't win the election, which I think, I've listened to multiple interviews with Andrew Yang, and I personally think that he's genuine in wanting to be the president, but even if he doesn't win, he's now put himself, you know, in the public eye to where he could be in a position to, you know, run for Senate or some other higher government position. Whereas right now he's he's never even had one. He's he's simply um, you know an entrepreneur who uh, does a lot of charity work. It's interesting. But where should we go? So yeah, where should we start with uh, the actual? Uh, let's talk about. So in the actual debate, I feel like we can start with uh, Biden and Harris arguing over the healthcare, or Biden and uh, De De Blasio. Oh. Right? Is that the New York mayor's name? Yeah, the mayor of New York City. Yeah, so uh, Harris and de Blasio are both for the universal health care. Biden says he's not. And uh, they have a good back and forth uh, about how much it's going to cost and how their plan won't work. It's a lot like the first debate when it came to health care just with different people arguing for it. Uh, there was a lot of bashing of Obama in this debate. And that that was a, kind of an unwise political move, in my opinion, just because Obama's, like, favorability rate among Democrats is still, like, 90%, something like that. Well, the reason why they and, attacked him was because that was their attempt to get at Biden. So then they had to, you know, how can you attack Biden if you don't mention the past you know, 10 years of his political service was underneath Obama. So you can't attack one without attacking the other. And some people were just willing to do it. You know, whether or not that hurts them or not is yet to be seen. Yeah, and then uh, there was a a little attack, or it was a pretty big attack that Geibert did on Harris about her time as Attorney General of California. I think that was actually kind of- pretty huge. Yeah, we're going to have the clip play right here. I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but She put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. 
She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response. As the elected Attorney General of California, I did the work of significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work of being in the position to use the power that I had to reform a system that is badly in need of reform. That is why we created initiatives that were about re-entering former offenders and getting them counseling. It is why, and because I know that criminal justice Thank system you, is Senator. so broken, that I am an advocate for what Thank we you, need Senator. to do to not your, your only decriminalize, but legalize marijuana in the United States. I want to I bring uh, Congresswoman uh, Gabbard back in. Your response, please. The bottom line is, Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not, and worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that, and the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, oh, you owe them an apology. Senator Harris. <laughs> My entire career. I have been opposed, personally opposed to the death penalty, and that has never changed. And I dare anybody who is in a position to make that decision, to face the people I have faced, to say, I will not seek the death penalty. That is my background. That is my work. I am proud of it. I think you can judge people by when they are under fire, and it's not about some fancy opinion on a stage, but when they're in the position to actually make a decision, what do they do? When I was in the position, of having to decide whether or not to seek a death penalty on cases I prosecuted, I made a very difficult decision that was not popular to not seek the death penalty. History shows that, and I am proud of those decisions. Senator Harris, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, you guys heard it yourself. Um, it's intense, and it's surprisingly easy to understand and to the point, which, when it comes to politics, makes me believe that it's true and take it at face value. Whereas you hear um, Harris's defense and it's like, what did you just say there? Like, did you, what did you say? You know what I mean? You're just using big Yeah, words. she walks around the right. issue. She doesn't. She didn't address any one of those specific topics right there. And, you know, just on a personal note, the part about her putting people in jail for um, marijuana use and then laughing about using it herself you know, that's why personally I'm for the legalization of marijuana right there because do I blame her for smoking a little bit of pot as like an upper middle class lady going to college in California? No. But at the same time, how are you going to be an attorney general and put people in jail for that? It's kind of hypocritical. Mm -hmm. And then laugh at it. You know what I mean? Like it's, I'm not saying that she's horribly at fault for that. I'm not saying that she could have done a lot to change it. I'm just saying it looks horrible. And Tulsa Gabbard is a savage. Yeah, well, it, it was a pretty big hit politically, too. And uh, we'll see how Harris comes out in like, these uh, polls. 
polls should be coming out for the next week or so, and we'll see what changes, especially because uh, Gabbard, Gabbard was actually the most searched candidate after the second debate in every state. Really? So, so that that might be good for her, or we'll see, because right after the debate, Kamala... Kamala attacked her, and then while well, she was interviewed by CNN, right. about her her dealing with Assad and all that stuff. Right. How she's an Assad apologist. Right. Which is another interesting topic of conversation, and I think that I I personally something that gets me going, and once again makes me think at face value that this candidate is pretty legitimate. And not like part of the quote unquote system is when they have wildly unique views. So someone like Tulsi Gabbard, when she's a huge part of her candidacy is being isolationist and being anti-war, anti, uh, you know, Middle Eastern involvement. Which is uncommon amongst the rest of the candidates. It just makes me take that at face value and make her seem that much more genuine. And I think there's a lot of people who fundamentally oppose um, the war in the Middle East. And I know you don't like me going off topic, Nick, but quickly, uh, I think foreign policy, specifically the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, are very, very, um, it's, it's touchy ground to to speak about because if you ask any liberal, honestly, if you ask most conservatives as well, they'll probably say they're against this 20-year war that really has had very little accomplishments. But then if you ask anyone in the nation, do they support soldiers? You know what I mean? You can't talk out against the military or soldiers. But you know what I mean? So it's a catch-22 right there. It's uh, Your credibility is almost ruined if you say that you don't support a huge army or you don't support you know, the welfare of soldiers. But on the other side, you might fundamentally be opposed to this war and or the huge government spending on defense. So what, how, do you, how do you navigate those waters? And I think Tulsa Gabbard has a very unique opinion on it that is pretty understandable. Well, I, the way she does it is she talks about how she enlisted in the National Guard after 9-11, how she did two tours over there. So... The way she does it, she does it actually pretty well. I think, I think, if there's someone who can make the argument, she she probably does a pretty good job at it, in my opinion. But, uh, Cory Booker, he attacked uh Biden for legislation Biden had in like the sixties or something, seventies. The extent of Booker doing like well in the debate was. When he would attack candidates, he did it pretty well. and But when it came to policies, I didn't really feel like there was any substance to it. It was more of the status quo. And then uh, Andrew Yang. Uh, I think Andrew Yang probably had the best closing statement out of anyone. How he talked about uh, the way they get up there, put on their makeups, have their rehearsed attack lines. And then, like if it was a reality TV show, that's why we have a reality TV show president. Once again, that, it's very genuine. It's very genuine. I'm going to be completely... Most Americans will like that. I'm be Most Americans do like I'm going to be completely honest. 
and I could just be an idiot. But when I hear someone like Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, um, sometimes Joe Biden, when I hear them speak, at the end of it, I'm like, what did you just say? What did you just say? Like, what's going on here? Did they just go political on me and uh, just beat around they the They talked in a circle and with... Right. Yep. And then when you hear someone like Tulsa Gabbard or uh, Andrew Yang talk, you're like, oh, you just laid out five facts for me. And I understand every single one of them. And now I can... Uh, you know, make my opinion based on what you just said. So to me, they're the more genuine people and it could just be that they're younger and they're more in touch with uh, this generation. But, you know, I think it's refreshing. So I guess we'll see where it goes from there. So, so out of the two debates, what do you think? Who has the upper hand? Who stood out to you the most? I mean... Once again, I think that overall, the people that made the biggest gains are people like Andrew Yang and Tulsa Gabbard, who started off as not being very well known and now are where they're yeah, at. barely at one percent. So now the polls. question is, you know, are they going to make another huge jump before it's time for an election, or are they not? So, and then even then, now you have you can now you got to get into the nitty gritty of politics, like so. Will one of them cut sling load and just hop on as a VP to one of the big hitters? Or will they not? There's a whole lot of uh, politicking that has to, or politicking that has to be done. And, you know, we'll just have to sit back and see exactly what happens. Well, yeah. So for the third debates, which is going to be coming up in September and I think October also has a debate. You got to qualify for those debates, which is have four national polls that have you at least at 2%, and then 130,000 unique donors. So I know Andrew Yang is one poll away. Julian Castro is one poll away. Gabbard is, I think, three polls away. But they all got the donations part. So we'll have to see where that goes. Uh... I'm hoping there's people like Castro, Yang, Gabbard, and some more moderates who make it into the next debate. There's already eight people who've qualified, but I think I think you need the other voices in there. So, but if if none of them do qualify, then it's gonna be more of the same, in my opinion. And it's probably not gonna be the best for them. What about uh, good old Marianne? She. And the, when it comes to polling, right now it's not looking like she's going to make it. She still needs, it, really, I believe, three more polls as well. Just about what about her as a candidate? Doesn't she, oh, from what I've read she, and listened to, she's running on like this spiritual, you know, out with the bad and with well, the good mentality. Well, so, so the way she's approached the debates and her candidacy is a lot like how Trump approached when he was running. They just have different rhetoric. They both say different things, but... What kind of got Trump elected was the spiritual speak that he was doing. It was more like a, let's do this together. I don't know. He made it grassroots community. For Marianne, she's talking to the, to the people in a spiritual way. She's saying, we, we have to dig deep down and attack this together. It, it makes for a good coalition, but the problem is if she can't get the polling up, she's not going to. She's going to wither away. I don't think like, she'll win, but it's interesting. And I did hear an argument that said, 
you know, one of these main candidates, if they could just channel the same energy that she has, then they would easily win. So, you know, mm-hmm. but will they be able to? I don't know. A lot of these guys are just uh, old-time politicians. Well, a, a, a lot of them are politicians, and you hear the way that you they speak. You you spoke about it earlier, how you hear some of them talk, and you're like, you just beat around the bush, and then you hear other candidates talk, you're like, they're actually talking about the issues, trying to figure out solutions. Right. I think it's going to be interesting. We'll see see what happens. We'll see how it goes. I think it's going to be interesting for us to continue to talk about uh, the road that they're on. And then it's going to be even more interesting when our front runners go head to head with the rule breaker himself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, so we're going to we're going to keep tabs on the whole thing. We're going to be releasing episodes con- or frequently talking about uh current events as well, not just the debates. And uh yeah, so thank you for listening to Talking Politics with Nick and Mason here. And uh we'll talk to you guys next time. <laughs>